0: Welcome to Seize Your Midlife, the podcast exclusively for midlife women. I'm your host, Bree Schumacher. We are going to dive into all the things from health and hormones to beauty and wellness. We'll be asking the question, what's my midlife purpose? And what am I gonna do with the rest of my life? We'll also be interviewing women who've taken leaps or made U-turns in midlife. This conversation is going to be engaging, sometimes educational, a little bit funny, and always real. It is my sincere hope that you find your midlife purpose and lead your most fulfilling life. So join us on this journey to seize your midlife. Let's go. Hello. Before we get started with this episode, I did want to let you know that there are topics related to trauma, suicide, and sexual assault today in the episode. So if you do have children around, go ahead and grab your headphones or save this one for a later date. Thank you. Welcome to another episode of Seize Your Midlife. I am so glad that you are here. Okay, so when I was in college, my boyfriend at the time called to tell me that he had taken a bottle of pills that he had swallowed down with a bottle of vodka, and I was absolutely terrified. And I turned to my mom and said, what should I do? And she said, call 911 immediately. And so I did. And by the time I turned on to his street, it was filled with flashing lights. There was a police car. There was an ambulance. There was even a fire truck. And they were leading him out of the house in handcuffs because apparently attempting suicide is illegal. And the thing is, that wasn't the first time that's somebody that I cared about, had suicidal thoughts, or suffered from deep depression. And it would not be the last time. My mom has always said that if someone in your family had cancer, everyone comes running with casseroles. But if someone in your family has mental illness, they go running for the hills. Well, it's National Mental Health Awareness Month, May is. And I think as a country, we do recognize mental illness more than ever. We are more sympathetic than ever before. And yet, it is literally raging in this country, I think especially after COVID. And still, people are afraid to ask for help because the stigma still runs deep, even here. I am so happy today to have on the podcast Erin McGrath-Rickey. Erin is a mental health expert, an advocate, a speaker, a musician, and an artist, and a survivor. Erin's story is not an easy one, and yet she remains resilient and grateful. I am really looking forward to Erin sharing parts of her own story and also some strategies for recognizing and supporting mental illness. Even if you don't personally suffer from mental illness, you undoubtedly know someone who has or does. So Erin, welcome to the show. Welcome to Seize Your Midlife. Thank you for having me. Well, the question I always ask everybody on the show first is how old are you? (laughs)
1: <laughs> everyone's favorite
0: question, right? Um, i right. 46. All right. Same as me. And I always add the caveat that it is only appropriate to ask that question on a midlife podcast, right? <laughs> <laughs> and the next question is, where are you right now? Um, today, I find
1: myself nice and toasty warm in my studio with a cup of coffee and my little fur babies.
0: And you are in St. Louis, right? Yes, I am here in St. Louis. Okay. Well, even though you are solidly based in St. Louis and that is your home, you were raised in Illinois, which is where I met you. Well, we were both going to Bennett Academy. And those of you who don't know Bennett, it is a private um, high school in the suburbs of Chicago. And in the middle of my junior year, I actually left Bennett. I moved to Wisconsin, from Illinois to Wisconsin. But Erin, you stayed. And you mentioned in our earlier call that something really terrible and, frankly, that changed the course of your life happened to you that year. Can you talk a little bit about what that was?
1: Um, yeah. I uh, I turned 18 in December of 1993. And by March in 94, I had survived two violent attacks. Um, In both of those situations, the monsters came to me at the darkest of the night. And those violent attacks were sexual assaults. Both occasions, they were individuals that I knew, acquaintances or someone that I knew more personally. And then in both occasions, there were people around me that could have helped me or could have stopped the assaults. But unfortunately, at that time in the 90s, there wasn't a lot of discussion awareness. There was a lot of fear. And so I was left to battle the circumstance on my own. And so, with, with saying that, you know, that whole experience, the three months of uh, dealing with that independently really really made a mark on on who i am today
0: well i i can't even imagine and i know you said it. on top of it you didn't really get the support or help you needed after that and you you told me a little bit about how after this you just without that help without that support your behavior turned kind of reckless and you were drinking and smoking and not taking care of yourself the way you should have. But somehow you end up graduating from Bennett and you go on to Loyola University in Chicago. And there you meet Paul. And within, it sounds like a really short time, you fall fast in love. And less than two years later, you get some really big news. What was that?
1: (laughs) Yeah, uh, pretty shortly after Paul and I meet, Find out I'm pregnant. Oh
0: my gosh. And how old were you at this point? At that time, I was 20 years old. Okay. And I mean, you're pregnant, you go on to have your first baby, Mark, and it's just not possible for you to stay at school. So you, you know, you start working full time and you have to even briefly move back in with your parents. And then you find out you're pregnant again, right? Yes. Oh, my gosh. And I just can't even imagine, you know, you're pregnant. You have a small baby. You know how challenging this is. Your your boyfriend at the time is in college, and yet you guys decide you're going to get married at City Hall 10 days after you give birth to your second son, Derek. Is that right?
1: Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting because a lot of, as I look back on all of these things that, of course, made complete sense at the time, you know, in regards to when you, when you touch back on the, you know, the violent crime to sexual assault and the impulsivity that results from those circumstances, you know, the following the subsequent pregnancies, the impulsive decision to get married, and it all worked out beautifully for me, and I'm really grateful for that. But you can see that How when I mentioned that the assaults really changed the course of everything in my life because it just set me on this path where I was no longer making choices about my life, as many had the opportunity to do. I was reacting to situations because I wasn't necessarily in a position psychologically where I was thinking clearly because as you briefly mentioned, you know, I, when the, the assaults first happened, I didn't have the support that many people don't have today. Um, it is becoming more available as the stigma is diminishing to a certain degree today. But not having the tools back then to cope with the emotions, even the immediate attraction to Paul, who I felt was very much a protector, all of that plays into the response of having been traumatized At such an early and pivotal age. And so the subsequent responses that happened for like the next several years in my life are oftentimes very, very easily pinpointed to the trauma. I've just been very lucky to have had this person in my life, Paul, who somehow was willing to go along in this crazy ride with me, you know.
0: Wow. And yeah, I, I appreciate that you just said those things because, you know, if you're listening and you have not experienced a deep trauma, especially in childhood or in those formative teen years, you know, you don't realize how much that runs deep into your veins and it impacts kind of the rest of your course of life, especially without hard, intentional work to, you know, Care for yourself. And at that time, as a teenager, you didn't get that. Mm -hmm. So I totally appreciate that you, you know, you shared that. So it sounds like you and Paul get married New Year's Eve of 97. And at this point, you have two boys, young boys, that are only 16 months apart. And if anyone listening is a mom, they just know. Having basically two babies and you are young, how just impossible the situation is! And so, what happens after that, like with your mental state?
1: So we were we were very very poor. We had no money. I was the only one who was working. You know, I had uh, left school to work full time to make sure that I had health insurance. Paul was staying in school. We kind of, you know, had a plan in terms of he had full funding in terms of his his education and so we had this plan i would work and and he would continue and the pressure that i felt that i was under and i again i wasn't i just wasn't aware of what i wasn't aware of what was going on i wasn't cognizant of the emotional state i was in i wasn't aware of what stressors were contributing. And I did not have the tool set to be able to deal in a healthy way. So after I had my second son, as many women do experience, you know, there's this influx of like a hormonal response. And that was something that I experienced. However, I am predisposed to bipolar disorder genetically in my family. And when you combine that predisposition genetically with the fact that I had been sexually assaulted two times. Physicians will say that I had a trauma-induced bipolar swing. And then you add on to that that I had the hormonal imbalance of the second pregnancy and the combination of stress of being young, the financial stresses that are involved with managing the situation at hand so it's a combination um for catastrophe and so where I'm getting to is that I ultimately got to a point where I, I snapped mentally and had rationalized uh in my mind that I was no longer uh helpful to anyone else I was a you know in a state of shame and a combination of both the the trauma of my past and the state of logic or quote unquote logic that comes with uh a bipolar mind that becomes suicidal, I was, in fact, had convinced myself that I would do my two young newborn boys a better service in their life with me not present and announced to my family that I would be leaving this world through suicide. Ultimately, that resulted in um, my first hospitalization, which was the foundation point because of my experience for the kind of personal advocacy that an individual needs to do for themselves. But yes, that was my first experience because of the crash after my son's birth because of the hormones. I was hospitalized into a psychiatric facility in Chicago.
0: Well, I mean, Erin, I think that it is – I mean, so understandable why you broke. I mean, just take one of those things and it's so hard and you had all of them on top of each other. And so just to go back, you know, I know you kind of gave me a little bit more information about how, you know, did you leave your parents a note? Um, You talked a little bit about how people were desperately searching for you. So what did that look like before you, you know, ultimately were committed to the hospital?
1: Well, I remember pretty vividly, actually, which is an interesting situation because when when one talks about suicide specifically, it's an interesting topic because it's it's often perceived as it's a conscious choice. And there's a quote, and and I I won't be able to do it justice right now, so I'm not even going to try. But um, an individual who makes a decision, if you can even call it that, to commit suicide or to you know to do what I did, which was in this situation, I, I made a phone call. I left my parents a message late in the evening about how I—I I, I really don't know. I just knew that it was something along the lines of like, "Thank you for this life. I'm, you know, going to leave." And I think at that point, I said I was going to like jump into Lake Michigan, which you know, in the middle of January is probably not something that's particularly safe, or you know, I'm not going to survive that. When in fact, I ended up going into this auto space, none of which I'd kind of just disassociated, got into my car and just drove. And I have no recollection of anything really until they found me. And I had essentially, I had just gone back to where I grew up, back to where kind of where we first initially met many, many years ago. And I had an uncle who ended up finding me because I I guess I made a phone call from a, a payphone in a Denny's which uh, in retrospect was a cry for help, you know, just to let them all know that I was, I guess, still alive and where I was. And then I was picked up and eventually I did end up in in the hospital. But, you know, what I was getting to is that that's not a logical person thinking. That's that's a disordered mind thinking. And those aren't choices that people make consciously is kind of where I was getting to. You know, that is the culmination of circumstances that become so overwhelming. I like the phrase, if an individual is caught in a burning building, they have two choices to be caught by flames or to leap to, you know, an impending death. And neither one is a good choice. Yeah. But you choose lesser of the two evils. And that's kind of what that kind of state of mind is. It's it's such chaos. You're drowning in a way that nobody understands. And so The illogical mind makes the decision, which seems to be the lesser of two evils. And it doesn't make sense to individuals who can't comprehend thinking like that because it is disordered thinking. It is a malfunction of the brain at that time because of contributing circumstances that. You know, in this situation, it was both chemical, it was trauma, it was circumstantial. And that that was, you know, an explosion, you know, just the same way that some circumstances actually physically explode. It was just that mine was psychological.
0: Yeah. And I think if you haven't watched anyone go through crippling, crippling depression. It is hard to imagine that like cannot get off the kitchen floor. You know, there's no like, hey, buck up, have a better day. Like it's not, it is, it is physical and it is mental and it is, Paralyzing. Mm-hmm. And I like that analogy of the fire because I think that's, you know, that's a way for people to really wrap their head around such a hard concept. Because if you don't suffer from depression or you haven't witnessed that sort of depression, it is hard to be like, what, well, that's, you know, that doesn't make sense. But, you know, thank God that you made that call. And that you did get the help that you needed at that moment. And somehow, with just incredible resiliency, you make it on the other side of this breakdown. And you're not only now caring for your two young boys, but how long after did you welcome your daughter into your family?
1: Uh, My daughter is two years and a month younger than my youngest son. So that was, yeah, pretty quickly.
0: <laughs> yeah. So now you've got three small children. Mm-hmm. And so tell me how because I you know I know now that you have these beautiful adult children who are amazing, you know products of of your parenting, but how were you able to battle those inner demons that were not gone and your mental health concerns which were not gone and raise these young babies? How did you do that?
1: Um, it's interesting because I've recently come across this philosophy or therapy modality in in psychology that's called internal family systems, which makes a lot of sense to me because I feel as I look back on the time frame of raising the kids, very much in line with the way that I've was able to successfully manage both a very, very debilitating psychological, you know disorder while still maintaining as close to quote-unquote normal life for three children and the internal family systems modality breaks it into like exiles managers and firefighters and that's just to say that like the exiles are this personnel it's kind of like these different personalities within you like sub personalities and exiles like hold deep, deep dark within you, like all the pain. So for example, like the exiles would be holding deep into the darkness and my soul, like for example, the pain and the suffering that I experienced as a result of my assault. So the exiles take that and they hold that and they bury it. Right. And that allows me to have these manager personalities that helped manage my life so it could continue. So I take the pain and bury it. And then I have this element of these other sub personalities that go into like hyper overdrive, which was like overly meticulously managing these kids' schedules and making sure that they had like everything. And it's almost to the point of dysfunction, you know, because it was like overzealously making sure that everything was clean and everything was controlled because that helped keep order. And then the final part was the firefighters, which is kind of like the part of yourself that helps deal with the suffering and... These are kind of these polarizing elements. And this is where you'll find situations like binge eating, self-harm, suicidal attempts, drug use. And so when I came across this treatment modality, I was like, oh, yeah, this makes sense to me because I've, you know, as in terms of raising my children, in, insofar as my family functioning, I took and isolated the pain And put it over here and like dealt with that in a time appropriate thing like when I was in therapy. And then I had these manager parts that would come out and be hyperfunctional. So, you know, the kids could get to school on time. They did their homework. They did all their practices. You know, all of that stuff was on point. And then the firefighter element of me took over. And that's where it was, you know, really self-inflicting, like self-punishment in terms of like the guilt and the processing that had never been made like I never made peace with, so that's where you'll find the the suicidal attempts, you know, um, and all the the painful self detrimental things that that come about. so but anyway, that's how I managed, I think,
0: yeah, and that was a really good explanation. I think that's that's a really like visual explanation, and it sounds kind of like compartmentalizing, right? like you're yeah, there's the part of you that you're kind of burying, and then there's the part of you that's like, over like you're saying, like you're showing up and you're giving it your all and you're doing your best. But those inner demons, they're still there. They're just now, like you said, exiles, like they're buried. And during this time, you know, of raising these three babies, your husband graduates Loyola and gets a job in St. Louis. And you guys make the decision to move to St. Louis because he's from there, his roots are there, his family is there. And it sounds like Paul was really excited to be home and be with his people. But you continued to struggle with your mental health. I mean, you didn't have your own support system there. And it sounds like, you know, you got a psychiatrist, which, you know, you needed, and you dedicated a long time to this person. And you were not getting the results or the help you needed. So your husband – helps you find this neuropsych doctor that seems to be a real critical game changer for you. So why do you think that was? Why do you think that that person made that pivotal difference for you?
1: Well, one of the things that I've come across in all these years dealing with psychiatry is the absolute necessity to find physicians who are the thing that I find most important is that you connect with a physician who listens to you. Because my belief is that doctors are your consultant in your wellness, they are just part of the deal. At the end of the day, you are the individual who is living your life, and they are individuals that you are paying to consult on what they believe with their knowledge is beneficial. And it's been my experience that entirely too many people take whatever their physicians say as, you know, just the be-all, end-all. And no matter how they're feeling, whether that's a medication thing, whether that's a processing thing, and, and that is not limited just to, you know, psychology and psychotherapy. This is across the board. My physician that I was seeing for a number of years Prior to, I was not improving. She was convinced that I had issues that were not, in fact, present. There was a disconnect. And when we switched to the physician who I've now seen for over 20 years, and this is a, he's a, happens to be one of the best in the country. And that's just a, a gift to me that I've had this blessing to work with him all these years. But the point is, is that I wouldn't have stayed with him unless he was the type of person that he is. And, and this doctor listens to what my feedback is when I take a medication. If I don't feel, Better on it, if my life quality is not improving, then his point is, is that he is not doing his job. And there are a plethora of medications and treatment modalities that are available, and we need to shift because if my life quality is not improving, then we need to do something different. And I'm really, really, str- I really strongly advocate that individuals who are dealing with their physicians. Really take this attitude because physicians should be partners in this because you need to be educated about what you're taking, what you're doing, what the process is because it's the only real way that people get better. Plus, that's how we educate the public because if you're going through a process and you're not educated about your own wellness, how are you going to educate your support network or those around you? So yeah, that's really why I think that this particular physician, because he listened He was a quality physician, not because he's of great stature, which he is in his own right, but it's because of his bedside manner, you know? And that's really what I think was the turning point for me is that he listened to what I had to say.
0: And, Erin, I love that you said, like, this is beyond mental health, that it is so important that everyone hears that, you know, women, especially, are often dismissed or misdiagnosed, not only in the mental health arena, but in the whole medical landscape, really. And, you know, like you said, if you are not getting better, if you do not feel heard, you need to advocate for yourself and look for somebody that hears you, no matter what your health issue is. And I think that's so important. So thank you for sharing that. One of the things that you mentioned to me when we talked was that you had always journaled and you, you know, had always been some type of, of artists. But it was in St. Louis that you really start to cultivate and craft your professional life as an artist and with your art. And so, you know, you start making your own art and you open up a company called Divine Mora Studio, where you start also marketing the art of others. How was that a pivotal piece in your story and also in your own personal identity,
1: you know, it was interesting because as Divine Mora Studio developed, it did help me to begin the process of really cultivating my own self identity. You know, I started after years, you know, I came down to St. Louis and I look back at this time and the early years, and I think I really struggled with my identity. I was. In a town that, it's a big, small town, and I was frequently identified as my husband's wife. You know, I was Paul's wife. I was, you know, Mark, Derek, and Cassidy's mom. I was, you know, my husband's family's, you know, sister-in-law or this or that. And it, it was like I was always somebody's something. I wasn't just me. And that was really difficult for me, especially as I... Struggled privately with this sense of fracture within myself. And so when I started developing Divine More Studio, it was a way for me to be kind of like the Humpty Dumpty that was shattered in a million pieces and kind of put it back together and present myself to the world and my own terms. But that being said, it was still a way. For me to be myself, but I was still essentially hiding behind a sort of facade because it wasn't Aaron McGrath Ricky who was out there. It was Divine Morris Studio. And it was a step towards my true self and my authentic voice because I was moving towards philosophies, taking stands on things that I felt very, very firmly about, whether it was like sexual gender violence, um, mental wellness. Things of that nature, but I was really pensive because I was bringing in different entities from the public, and I didn't feel comfortable forcing my, you know, social agenda on others. So it was Divine Morris Studio was a step towards me finding my true voice. I think it was hugely impactful. And I loved every single second of it. You know, and the framework still exists today in terms of partnership and collaboration in terms with other working artists. But ultimately, it was the door that opened for me to find really the path of what I i think I'm really here to do.
0: Well, Erin, I think that everyone listening can really resonate to that being identified as somebody's daughter, mom friends, sister-in-law, whatever. And, you know, especially as the years go by, kind of losing our own, you know, personal identity. And so I think, you know, kind of what you said about taking a step Towards what you were really meant to be doing and what you were put on this earth to do, that a lot of us, you know, especially women in midlife, that as their kids leave the house or you know that they, you know, are shifting kind of their focus, that that is such an important thing to hear. That reclaiming your own self and taking that first step into stepping into what you were meant to do. So thank you for sharing that. And I was blown away when you told me that in addition to you know having three children and being a working artist and marketing other people's art, you and your husband also owned a restaurant in the city, which is crazy to me that you added another thing to your list. Um, and then also you start speaking on stages. And you're talking about, you know, mental health and surviving sexual assault, and you're really becoming an advocate. And you told me something that really stood out to me, and that was that, you know, you were speaking so much on surviving sexual assault that you were like, you know, maybe I kind of need – to take a step back a little bit from this being my platform because now this is what people are kind of identifying me with and, you know, recognizing my voice for. And so at the same time that you're kind of pondering this, you know, you talk about how your children are leaving the house. You know, they're they're moving on to college. They're growing up. And you and Paul are becoming empty nesters. And so you decide you're going to go to Mexico and try to reconnect or you know take a take a moment to reconnect and what happens on that trip
1: yeah it's interesting um when you think that sometimes like there's a destiny for you <laughs> and you don't have ironic because, you know, you think you have control and then, you know, there's sometimes a path. Because as you mentioned, I did, you know, for 10, 15 years, I was speaking three times a day on trauma and assault. And and it was becoming essentially synonymous with, you know, I was the poster child for sexual assault. And I just, I really did think that there was a lot more to me than that. I believed in, in other causes as well. And I was starting to lose my voice in, you know, other elements of mental health. And that's, I wanted it to be more than the one incident or well, one being several, but, um, more than one, one topic. So to your point, we went to Mexico and ironically, at our 20 year anniversary trip to this beautiful all inclusive in Cancun might have been the first night we were there. Actually, uh, both Paul and I had our beverages drugged by staff and we were separated on the property and I was taken to a utility room on the grounds and gang raped. Paul was taken to our room, and um he has no recollection of the evening, but our our room was um, you know, ransacked. And so, really, my point is that it seems like every time I try to step away from this topic, every time I try to move in a different direction, shedding the what I feel is a certain degree of responsibility, to the public to educate the public about this topic as if it's not my responsibility. It's almost as if the universe is like, yeah, well, we kind of think you need to keep talking. So yeah, Uh, That was, that was pretty shattering because this time it, it was, it wasn't just me and it was, you know, and, and the prior assaults that I had experienced, not to to diminish one trauma over another, but you know, they're different. And I was starting to see the spectrum from different, from different angles. One was acquaintance assaults and this one was, you know, perpetrators that I had no, it was a random act of violence.
0: Oh, my God. Aaron. I mean, I hear this and I, I hear what you're saying about the universe saying to you, like, this is still your platform. But I mean, what a brutal way for the universe to send you that message. And yeah. um, <laughs> when I hear it, even for the second time, my heart aches for you and for your husband. And I actually remember, and I'm sure people listening will remember this being in the news, that this had started to happen in Cancun and I think in the DR. And I, I just can't even imagine, like, I feel like you had come out kind of, you know, out of the darkness into the light, and then this happens. And, you know, at this point, you're married 20 years, and you guys have gone through so much together. And now, again, you are experiencing this just huge trauma. How did your marriage survive that? You
1: know, I wouldn't say that it was it's been an easy one. I say that I even to this day in bits and pieces still process, you know, that trauma because that was, you know, that's a big one. And it's compounded because of my history. I can't speak to the way that, you know, Paul handles it. But together, I think that we know that as we look at our our long history together, I think what we've come to realize is that if we were going to give up on each other, it would have been a long time ago. And that marriage is by no means easy, nor is it a straight line you know, too. There's no direct path to happiness or joyfulness, and there's no green grass and and happiness all the time. I mean, it's very much like the moon cycles that I experience. I mean, when things go down, it goes down and it gets dark. And when it peaks into the sunlight or joyfulness, you know, it is as bright and joyful as you can possibly get. And that our marriage is that we are riding those crests together. You know, we're in it in the darkness together and we're in it at the high points together. And that doesn't mean that it's easy or that we see eye to eye all the time. And, you know, over the years we've been working on fundamental things, which I, you know, speak on all the time. Everything is about communication. Everything is about understanding the other person's point of view because, you know, not everything is the way – we want to see it. And I think that the more we both Paul and I continue to try to understand what the other person is going through. And it hasn't always been like that, you know. I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to be like, forget this. This is too hard. This is just too hard. It would just be easier if I had to deal with all the decisions on my own and I'm the executive decision maker. But then I would have been truly alone in all of this. And and that's nothing that I've ever wanted. And you know, who knew that I was going to meet my life partner, you know, at 18? At I just, I never could have foreseen that and that he would be willing to go through the trenches with me. But that's all about, you know, the willingness to be in the fight together, no matter what comes at you.
0: Aaron, your words and the way that you describe marriage, I think are so just brilliant because no matter if you faced a trauma or not. Those crests that you're talking about are such a part of a long-time marriage. And I think something that people don't talk about is that you do go through these valleys of hardship in your marriage, but you're in it together and you ride the wave and then here you come up, you know, on the other side and that it continues that way and that the way that you get through it is by holding steadfast together, even in those times that are brutally hard. And so I think that that is just really important for people to hear, you know, there's these lows and then there are these bright joyful highs like you said and no matter where your marriage is it's never going to be all hearts and rainbows you know like you said it is a journey and it is work and it is a everyday commitment and so it's just really beautiful to see you know your marriage and your three you know grown kids now through all of this through all of these hardships and fast forward to present day you have a new company And you are still an advocate and a really critical voice in the fight for sexual survivors and for mental illness. And will you just tell people where to find your company and your advocacy and your art?
1: Um, Yes. So I have a website. I'm actually really confusing to find because I went through this whole period where I was like no, I want to be so authentically me. So I ca- cause this big confusion online. But currently <laughs> my my website is just justeproductions.org. And within my website, it sp- breaks down both a uh, page of awareness. There is a whole link on awareness. So each month it addresses um, throughout the year different campaigns to educate. Uh, generally, it's all mental health uh which will include everything from suicide prevention, education, chemical dependency, gender-based violence, all of those things, anything that would be remotely considered mental health. Those are months dedicated to each advocacy campaign. I also have visual art and things that are listed. My work is dedicated to visually raising awareness, using the medium of 2D and 3D art to interact with the public and facilitate education and awareness to these topics. And all of that information can also be accessed through my social media platforms, both on Instagram and Facebook. And those are both Just E
0: Productions. Okay. Thank you. And, you know, I had mentioned to you when we talked that I had heard something recently that, you know, kids right now are suffering from depression, anxiety in ways that we've never seen before. Something like one in every three young girls is experiencing anxiety. And I know I interviewed a while ago, a woman who runs a hemp farm and has CBD products. And she said she never expected that one of her biggest customers would be mothers of children suffering from these things, desperate for help. And so I was just hoping that you could kind of Tell people what are some signs to look for when you realize that this has gone, you know, anxiety has gone beyond worry and that depression has gone beyond, you know, maybe just being in a funk. Can you tell people what to look for in, you know, that maybe their children or other people that they love?
1: Absolutely. I think the biggest thing that we want to watch in circumstances like these, especially in the day of, you know, the social media craze. Is the difference between situational and clinical? But first, we want to have our eyes open to things like when individuals are excessively worrying or are excessively fearful, when individuals are excessively sad or low when it doesn't connect to something that would be situationally understandable, you know, like a death or a loss of a job or something like that. And when the time frame becomes, you know, considerably long. Other signs are items like, you know, confusion in thinking or lack of ability in concentrating, extreme mood changes, mood disorders specifically, are noticeable. And this is particularly difficult in adolescents in the identification of mood disorders because of their hormones. But you do want to keep an eye on because this is the first sign of symptoms like bipolar disorder or even borderline personality disorder, which is a behavioral issue that is treated through behavior modification. So uncontrollable highs or feelings of dysphoria or euphoria, and then things like prolonged feelings of irritability, anger, avoiding friends and social activities, you know, isolation, difficulties understanding people. A big sign is changing sleep habits, you know, real low energy, fatigue. Another one is eating habits. And, and and when you get into mood things and psychological things, it's going to be these extremes. And people have a difficult time understanding the description where it's going to be like these very vast descriptions, like it's either increased hunger or total lack of appetite. But my point is that you want to notice like, what was the individual's norm and have they changed dramatically? You're going to more severely um, individuals who have a difficulty perceiving a real sense of reality, substance use, like an increase of alcohol or drug use, any contemplation or discussion of suicide. And I cannot emphasize enough if anyone mentions um, suicidal ideation, I strongly advise you to address it. As real and handle it accordingly. and there are plenty of resources that address exactly how to handle it. You always would never, never, never feel bad about addressing suicide threats in the most serious fashion. Always ask for forgiveness afterwards, assume the worst. Finally, just like an intense fear of like weight gain or concern of appearance,
0: things like that. <laughs> that's a that's my brief list of of uh, of signs well i think that that's so good and so important because there's a lot of different things that could be going on and i think the you know the biggest takeaway is you know when you kind of know somebody's baseline and they're straying you know strongly from it for a prolonged period of time that that's when you're like there is a more serious problem here and one of the things i've heard you know from multiple people is that when they realize there's a problem whether it's for themselves for their child for somebody that they love that getting help is a struggle. So, can you tell everyone listening, you know, where where to start? What are some resources? Where can people reach out and get the help that they need?
1: I do agree with you, and I can speak personally as well informed as I may be when I find myself in a state of mind that is what I like to refer to as a funk just because it doesn't sound clinical or frustrating or depressing. It is very difficult with all the knowledge that I have, to facilitate my own help. And that is a very real thing. If you find someone that you care about who is struggling, I really emphasize to not be afraid to reach out and to learn all that you can about mental health. That's the first thing. The more we know, the better we are able to be a support network. There are lots of different avenues. The computer is your best friend. Google is our friend here. Health insurance. That's the number one place to look if the individual or yourself has insurance, whether that be private, Medicare, what have you. There will be a behavioral health line listed on the back of your card that will give specific lists of physicians, hospitals, and clinics that they specifically cover. And the behavioral health line on the back of your private insurance card will walk you through those procedures. If that's not available to you or that's not your first line, you can always go to your primary care doctor. You can contact your state or county mental health authority. My absolute hands-down favorite national group is NAMI. NAMI stands for National Alliance for the Mentally Ill. They are available online, via phone, They might have a text. I'm not quite sure. Via NAMI, you can contact the local office, the national office, and they have the ability to direct you to all sorts of resources, whether they're groups available that are free, whether they are physicians in your area. I mean, they're a plethora of information. Every single individual I have ever had the privilege of working with has been more than helpful and kind and understanding. I cannot say enough positive things about NAMI.
0: Well, thank you. I think those are really like two super tangible resources. And I appreciate that because I do think sometimes people feel helpless is probably the number one Emotion that people feel when they love someone who is suffering. So, thank you for those resources. Now, on the flip side of that, you know, I know you talked about at the time when you were a teenager that you did not get the support that you needed. If someone is listening and they love someone that has suffered from a trauma, that is suffering from mental illness or depression or anxiety, how do you recommend that they support that person? in the best way possible.
1: You know, the biggest thing that I recommend to individuals who are not themselves dealing with it, but are, you know, engaging with a loved one or a friend or something is number one, don't talk, just listen. My experience has led me to see that outside people are are uncomfortable. They are again, the reason I mentioned like, you know, Google is our friend. We need to educate ourselves. And and these topics have been hidden and shroud in secrecy and shame for so long and wrongfully so, you know, people do not become mentally ill by choice. They're born with these things. People do not become sexually assaulted because they made a choice. They were the victims of a crime. No more than someone gets physically beat up in, you know, like when they get jumped on a park or they're like you know or on the streets it, they're acts of violence and so we need to treat them as such you touched upon it at the beginning about like if if someone has an illness some people want to bring them a casserole but when you talk about mental health they they run the other way and that's not because people don't care it's because they are uncomfortable and they don't know what to say my point is that you don't need to really say anything you need to be available To be supportive. And that's not a hard role to fill. I think that most people who are dealing with trauma just want to be believed, understood. They want someone in the trenches with them. They're not looking for advice or for someone to fix everything. They just are looking for support. Unsolicited advice is not something that makes us feel better. It tends to make individuals who are dealing with the things feel bad. Ask how you can help, what you can do to help. Instead of offering, educate yourself on on what things you can do independently. But oftentimes we put individuals who are struggling in charge of everything as if the individuals themselves need to make those, the others, meaning the quote unquote normals, normies as, as they're fondly referred to, comfortable. And that's a lot of pressure on someone who's struggling with trauma or a mood disorder or a state of mind that they're struggling with. Because on top of processing all that, you know, we've been dealt, we're now responsible for handling the emotional discomfort of others who don't know how to talk to us. So my best suggestion is to, you know, believe, support, you know, unconditional support, and just ask how you can help.
0: Yeah, those are such good tips. And I think really important to hear because I agree. I think that discomfort, kind of misunderstanding or not understanding, not having the knowledge, you know, is what prevents people from stepping closer to the person suffering instead of stepping away. And I mean, I sincerely hope that as, you know, Women like you, people like you that are out educating, continue to grow. That as a society, we start really recognizing mental illness as a disease that it is and that it's not something taboo or that people are afraid to talk about or be in the same room with. Erin, I know as I listen to your journey, you know, when we talked a few weeks ago and then again today, that your story is so much of resilience and frankly of bravery. You found light in the absolute darkness and found a willingness to survive in the face of horrible trauma. And I saw on your, I think it was your Instagram, a painting that you had posted and you titled it, Difficult Roads Often Lead to Beautiful Destinations. And I Screenshotted that image because it resonated to me so much about your story. And I think it's a beautiful message for everyone listening, no matter what difficult path they may have been on or are on now. And so I just want to say thank you to you for being on the show and for telling your story, for being vulnerable and giving such tangible and tactical advice for people listening to walk away with. And I hope, friends, when you're listening, that your path, even if it's hard right now, leads you to a beautiful destination. So thank you, Erin. I appreciate your time today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: And friends, thanks for being here. If you can so kindly tell other people you know about the podcast, give it a rating or a review, it will lead more women to the podcast and to this conversation. And the more women that join this conversation, the fuller it will be. Thank you and have a beautiful day.